huge thank you to my wife for stepping in to doing announcements and uh, bringing time. It's, uh, it's special to get to be up here after she prays. And even as we were worshiping and looking out at a crowd gathered at 8.30 a.m. on a Sunday morning, um, I am so overwhelmed by the presence of God today. And uh, it's, it's not that I have some kind of special message cooked up, ready to go. I hope it's fire, but the only fire I possess is the Holy Spirit, and so do you. So um, God's doing something so special in the church right now, the like big C church around the world. And we have the special honor of getting to be a part of that here in Auburn, Alabama. And something just feels a little bit different as we've been praying every day and as we step into moments like these. Very few of you were here almost seven years ago at the beginning of ACC. And there were these moments, especially in that first year, where you could see the kingdom bubbling up through what God was doing here. And you knew, like, something's about to happen. And I just, like, can't wait to see it. This month feels like that times 10. And so I just sense a a move of God coming and us getting to be a part of that. But I sense it not just in like an Auburn scale, but on like a grand scale. You know, God is doing something in the world right now and he's doing something new. And he loves to bring massive revival and awakening to the church at the least expected time. So you might hear me say that and go, oh, great, let's get hyped up about what God's doing in the world, even though people are dying of starvation every day, even though our nation has been so divided, especially the past year, even though there's a virus and a pandemic running, running wild and there's people dying, even though all of that, you want to get up and talk about God's doing this great work through the church. But yet, when I look through the course of history, this is just like our God. I think about the great awakening that happened and you hear that and you go wow God did something amazing historically but do you realize that that happened on the back end of the enlightenment and so many people thinking that the church was about to be irrelevant doesn't that sound like the post-christian culture that we live in where people have graduated into being too smart for Jesus that he's irrelevant he doesn't have a message for them I think about these moves that happened throughout history. I think about uh, guys like Billy Graham and movements of evangelism that happened not too long ago. Do you realize that that happened after the Roaring Twenties where our culture became so worldly and after World War II where people thought the world was going to end and after the Great Depression where people were depressed and dying and so like feeling like there's never going to be a brighter day and then boom, millions of people awakening and coming to know Jesus? It happens at the least expected time, but watch this. It always happens in light of people praying. God loves to move through speakers, and God loves to move through music. But what's happening now as God has shut down massive gatherings is I don't believe God wants to cause massive revival because Hillsong writes good music. I don't believe God wants to cause massive revival because passion throws a good conference. I think God wants to cause massive revival because normal churchgoers are getting on their knees and praying for the first time in their life. And that's what I sense happening. And then I see us in this moment of our culture 
locked and loaded with a multi-generational movement, if you could see the faces that I saw last Sunday in this room, particularly at our night gatherings of all of these moldable 18 to 25-year-olds who are going, my worldview is being shaped, and I don't want what's happening in the world to dictate the way I see the world. Tell me what Jesus says about the world around me. And there's like a hunger and a thirst that's bubbling over, and I'm going, God, you've positioned us in this moment, in this college town, right in the middle of the Bible Belt to be a part of that. And I'm not telling you that to hype you up. I'm not telling you that to like make you excited to hear the sermon you're about to hear. I didn't plan to say any of this. Actually, I haven't even jumped into the sermon. You're going to be here a while. I tell you that to tell you, you could be standing or sitting in a moment that you do not even recognize the significance of it. Like I'm standing over there next to Courtney during worship and we're singing that song, Promises, and I'm going, God, you're about to do something that is going to rock our world for your glory. We're talking about holy ground. Listen, holy ground is not limited to Moses taking off his shoes at the burning bush. Holy ground is wherever the presence of God falls. And the presence of God is falling in a powerful way in this room as we pray, but also in this community as we go out. So I'm pumped up. I am fired up. And I could probably talk about this for the remainder of the sermon, but I hope you know you're in a moment and you get to be a part of something. The only way God's going to see to it that you get to step into it is if you're willing to sacrifice your idols. And so today, let's lay everything on the altar before the Lord and go, God, you can have it all. I don't want to waste my life on what everybody else is wasting it on. And you can have my worldview. Show me how I'm supposed to see you. So we've been in this series called Views. And it's so fitting that I would get a sense like this in the middle of this series because we're talking about what it means to have a gospel worldview. A gospel worldview is when you see everything about your life and everything about the world around you through the filter of who Jesus is. So we're not talking about adhering to the Christian religion, praying a prayer to receive Christ. I live in the Bible Belt. I believe Jesus is the Son of God. I want to go to heaven forever. No, we're talking about the gospel defining the way you interpret everything that happens in your life and revolutionizing the way you go about your everyday rhythms. So last week we asked the question, why am I here? The deepest question you can possibly ask, why am I here? And the answer, very simply, cover to cover through the scriptures is this, personal communion with God. You were created by God for God. And you were created to walk in loving union with God. You were created to pray and read the Bible and experience the voice of your heavenly father every single day of your life. So your life no longer has to be dictated by the storms and seasons that may come up circumstantially. Your life can actually be rooted in the soil of personal communion with God that doesn't shift and change like everything else in the world around you, but remains constant and remains the cause of the fruit that comes from your life. Your why is communion with God. And I hope you've been alone with God this week. And I hope you've been frustrated in some of your times with the Lord this week. Anybody had some meaningless prayer times this week? Anybody had some scriptures that they read and you were like, what does that even mean? That's awesome. Because you're sowing into your life the why, which is less about what you get out of a quiet time and what you get out of a prayer time and more about the result that happens on the back end of walking faithfully with God every single day. That's happening for so many of you, and I absolutely love it. Your why is communion. Today's message on the back end of last week is a question as well. And I believe this question is equally as important as the question of why am I here. And let me say this. When you see what the question is, you're not going to agree with me, and that's okay. Why am I here is a deeply theological question. It asks like 
ultimately, why do I have breath in my lungs and why was I created and what is this planet that I'm flying through outer space on and how did this all happen? But this question is equally as important to your everyday life. And the question is this. Here's my title. Who are my people? Who are my people? As you write that down, and even if you're not, here's what I want you to do. I want you to look at somebody next to you and tell them, you are one of my people. You are one of my people. And Brad, you got nobody next to you, but I'll tell you, you are one of my people. Brad and I were getting it in at the gym this week, keeping those New Year's resolutions. I love it. You are one of my people. Here's the thing, whether you realize it or not, look up here. Nothing in your life will affect your worldview like the people who are closest to you. No, no matter how many sermons you listen to, no matter how many books you read, no matter how long you've been in church, nothing impacts your everyday reality and the way you see the world like the people who get closest to you. And this makes perfect sense when you read the New Testament of the Bible. Because when Jesus describes our relationships with one another as believers, he actually doesn't describe that as independent of our relationship with him. He describes that as interdependent on our relationship to him. In other words, unity with Christ is unity with each other. When the apostle Paul was won over by Jesus, his name was Saul. It was changed to Paul, and he got knocked off, literally knocked off a horse and had an encounter with God. When he was on his way to Damascus to persecute and murder more Christians, Jesus asked this very, very clear question. He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? This is the question that guided Paul's theology more than any other question. It's strange for Jesus to ask him, why are you persecuting me? Now, of course, Paul doesn't answer because when the Son of God knocks you off your horse, you shut up and you do not say anything and you call him Lord. But the obvious answer to that question is, I've never met you. Saul never met Jesus. He didn't know him. He had no reason to be challenged by Jesus and asked, why are you persecuting me? And so the answer to that question from Jesus would be, you're persecuting me because you're persecuting my people. There is a union that our relationship with Jesus has in our relationships with one another. And they're not separate, they're one and the same. The New Testament points to this again and again and again. Why? Because God is a God of community. And so you can never have a private relationship with God. You have a personal relationship with God that exists in a community called a body, the body of Christ. What is the church? The body of believers. What does that even mean? That means the proof that Jesus rose from the dead is not his physical body walking around showing off the scars and going, God rose me from the dead, believe in me. The proof of the resurrection of Jesus is the love relationships that believers have with one another. And so it is the hope of the world that the local church would show Jesus is risen through the way we go about our relationships with one another and the way we go about loving the lost, dark, and broken world around us. This is basic Christianity. And so when I ask that question, who are my people, I'm asking you about the deepest issue many of you have without even realizing it. So like last week I said, okay, I've been following Jesus for 20 years, and honestly, I don't even know how I'm still going, but God has sustained me through personal communion. I look back at different seasons of my life, and I see inconsistency, I see disobedience, I see so many ways that I've missed it over time. But the consistent factor in my life has been I spend time alone with God, and God talks to me, and I talk to him, and that sustains me. But I only told you half of the truth last week, and it's because we're in a sermon series, and that's got to be okay. When I said... All you have to do is get alone with God. That's half the truth. All you have to do is get alone with God and have the right friends. 
If you get those two things right, you're going to sustain in your faith. This is the number one sustainable factor in Christians who make it long-term following Jesus and the number one reason why people fall away. And so a lot of you who grew up in church, you grew up in the youth group movement, which existed to get you emotionally excited about God for a weekend or a youth camp and spending the rest of your life chasing that high. It was very unhealthy and not okay. And I was a part of it. I shouldn't say was, is, because it's still happening. And so what we do is from a young age, we train you to have a seasonal relationship with God depending on emotions. But God's recipe for your longevity in your faith is never about how you feel. It's about who's around you. Because if you surround yourself with the right group of people, no matter how inconsistent you become, if they're moving toward Jesus, guess what you're going to do without even trying? Move toward Jesus. I used to tell uh, my youth group when I was a youth pastor, if you want to know where you'll be five years from now, show me your five best friends. And it's so true. If you want to know where you're going in the future, look around at the people that you allow to be the closest to you. And so there's two enemies of this talk that I'm giving. The number one enemy is isolation. Because I believe isolation will take you out faster than the wrong friends will. And 2020 has led to a lot of people being all alone. And it's time for isolation to be exposed as the weapon of the enemy. But there's also the wrong friends who will lead you away from Jesus over time. And we're going to see this in the word of God. But I wanted you to have this framework from the beginning. God has in mind your endurance in your faith. And here's what I need you to do when we open the word. I need you to not let this be a message for the young people in church who are so impressionable by relationships. Because here's what I found to be true isolation is hurting more older people than younger people. So we like to hear this message and go, yeah, tell the young people they need to make the right friends and make the right decisions. But then somehow you get older and you graduate from needing deep relationships. And what's actually the truth is that as you get older, you need deep relationships more then than you did before because you're getting hit with all these things from your childhood that you didn't know were going to affect you in your marriage. You didn't know it was going to affect you as a parent. You didn't know all these things were going to come crashing down and you're more busy than you've been ever before and you got more responsibilities and you're supposed to have all this wisdom and knowledge, but you're literally falling apart and God's going, what happened to friendship? That that wasn't there for you to be a social person in college. Friendship is the reason why you exist because it's not just your friendship with other people. It's actually your friendship with Jesus. It's being cultivated by other people. So we're going to build a culture here at ACC. I can't say we're going to build it. We already have built it, but we're going to invite you in on the special thing that God's doing here. And it has nothing to do with sermons and songs, and it has everything to do with doing life deeply with the people around you. Let's get into the word of God. If you brought your Bible at the 830 service, hold it up. Hold it up all over. Gosh, this is revival. This is revival. This is so good. Okay, turn with me to Mark chapter 2, and I want to show you something. I did not invent the Bible drill. I invented the portion of it that is about organizing single people into Christian dating relationships. Yes, that was me. I got a patent on that. But I did not ultimately invent the Bible drill. I actually saw it this week when I was watching an old sermon clip of Billy Graham. And just to prove to you how timeless of a tradition you are stepping into every week, I wanted to show it to you. Watch this video as you turn to Mark chapter 2. This is so cool. Now tonight, I want you to turn with me to the 24th chapter of Matthew's Gospel. The 24th chapter of Matthew's Gospel, beginning at verse 1. How many have your Bibles? Lift them up. Thousands of Bibles. The 24th chapter of Matthew's Gospel. These were. Come on, how cool is that? That's Madison Square Garden in the 1950s, guys. Bible drill. 
And I, I don't mean to overhype something that we do naturally, but come on. You look at a video like that and you hear his voice, that southern accent, and you're like, man, God was moving in that moment. And the people there probably didn't even realize how historic of a moment they were sitting in. Guys, you could be in one in 2021 right here and right now. Not joking. Okay, why are we in the Gospel of Mark? We're in the Gospel of Mark because Mark was written to a Greco-Roman worldview. I got to say this every week. It's a fly-by view of the life of Jesus. The other narratives, Matthew, Luke, and John, are written to Jewish worldviews. And they're amazing accounts of the life of Jesus. But Mark is seeking to show Jesus as the ideal of a Greco-Roman worldview. Why is that important to you? Because the Greco-Roman world was built on four pillars. And they're the same four pillars that the United States of America are ultimately built on. It's the idea that if your government sets you up with a system that maximizes your health care, maximizes your education, maximizes maximizes your entertainment and maximizes your access, access to sports, you will be happy and you will enjoy life. Now, I know America was founded, John Locke and his writings, and, and really Christianity was major at the root. But if you look at like fundamentally, where did the idea for civilization on the Western side of things rise up? It's the Greco-Roman world. And so what Mark is going to do is he's going to show Jesus as the ideal thing on top of all their four ideals. Okay? So over and over again, he's going to be a healer and show that he's the ultimate doctor. Over and over and over again, he's going to be teaching in a way that astonishes people and blows people away at his knowledge. Over and over again, he's going to have this crowd that's amazed and kind of wooed by his presence. He's an entertainer. And, and, and then over and over again, he's going to be the champion over the darkness. And ultimately, the title that Jesus wins is what Mark wants to get across as a biblical worldview. Now, you're going to see all four of those things present in Mark chapter 2. And when I read this story, I want you to watch how a view of Jesus not only changes the way we do life together, but changes the way we encounter him personally. Mark chapter 2, verse 1. If you're there, say I'm there. Here we go. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. So if you remember last week, he decided to leave home, go preach other places. Now he's come back. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man, carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it, and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. Amazing. And this is a crazy story that a lot of you have heard repeatedly growing up, but I need you to see it with fresh eyes. 
We like to assume that it's normal for people to climb through a roof and lower their friend on a magic carpet before Jesus. Actually, go back to this scene. And you know what? I always recommend it, but The Chosen. The Chosen does a great job of showing this scene. Because Jesus is talking to all these people. This house is overcrowded. There's people all around. And digging through someone's roof takes time. So you got to think, as Jesus is teaching, there's like stuff falling. There's this awkward moment that is ensuing of like, what is happening right now? And do they even care about whose property this is? And Jesus is just teaching and teaching and teaching. And all of a sudden, very slowly, these four individuals are lowering their friend who cannot walk, just doing everything they possibly can to get him in the presence of Jesus. And boom, there it is. He has a moment with the Son of God. And we love to read this and talk about Jesus' brilliant interaction with the Pharisees, and we love to talk about his healing power. But let's talk about on the surface. If you're paralyzed and you had no shot at getting to Jesus and your friends got you one moment with the Son of God, how disappointed would you be when you heard these words? Look at Mark chapter 2, verse 5. They sound awesome, but it's so disappointing. When Jesus saw their faith, totally forgot that that was even there. Notice that sometimes Jesus, what he does in your life is not just a result of your faith, it's the result of your friend's faith. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. And I love Jesus's forgiveness, but if I'm that man in that moment, I'm going, great. Anything else on top of the forgiveness? That's awesome. Love that I'm forgiven. Didn't come for that. Not the reason why we dug through the roof, but thank you for that. What you don't realize, though, is that in making this statement, Jesus is announcing for the very first time in the Gospel of Mark that he's God. That he's not just a good teacher, he's not just a prophet, and he's not just a healer. He's saying, I'm God. Why? Because to say that you are a forgiver of sins is to also insinuate that all sins committed by this individual were actually against you. So like if you and a friend are having a conversation and let's say your friend hurt you and I walk by you guys talking and I look at your friend and I say, hey, I just want you to know, I know you hurt this person, but listen, I forgive you. You would go, thank you, pastor, irrelevant. Like I, I don't care that you have forgiven my friend. I'm the one who has to forgive them. Why? Because they wronged me, not you. When Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven, he's also saying without saying, your sins were against me. I'm God. And that's why the Pharisees freak out. They go, oh, this isn't just good teaching. This is, this is blasphemy. Why did he say, they say, why does this fellow talk like that? Anyone who calls you a fellow is a hater, okay? It just instantly, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. And notice what Jesus is doing in this moment. Jesus is taking an opportunity to not just meet an immediate need for this man, but to meet his ultimate need and tell the narrative of why he has come in the first place. Look at verse 8. Jesus explains. Immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. That's one of the most important verses in the entire Bible. You should underline that one. You should star it. You should highlight it gel pen, whatever you're using, make sure you remember that verse. The whole point of this miracle is that Jesus has authority to forgive sins. Why? Because more than Jesus is a miracle worker, he is Savior, and he wants to show that off. And he wants to show that off through one of the most brilliant questions he ever asks. 
Sometimes I'm going to do a series on the questions of Jesus. Sometimes his questions are more interesting and uh, loaded with revelation than his explanations. Which is easier, to say, get up, take your mat, and walk, or to say, son, your sins are forgiven? That is such a deep question. Because on the surface, and this is what a lot of scholars have said for many, many years, on the surface it looks like what Jesus is saying is that anybody can say your sins are forgiven, but as soon as you say, take up your mat and walk, you're put on the spot to have to demonstrate whether or not you have the power to do what you said. And so it seems like the easier thing to say is your sins are forgiven because if you tell the man to get up, take his mat and walk, that's going to be hard to demonstrate. But actually, Jesus wants you to realize that level of thinking and then flip it upside down and take it deeper. So because it's harder to demonstrate in the moment that you have that power, then he wants you to think, oh, wait, if you have to demonstrate that you have, to ha- that you have the power to heal after saying, get up, take your mat and walk, then you're going to have to demonstrate that you have the power to forgive this man. This is the first shadow of the cross in the gospel of Mark. I not only have the power to affect his physical condition, I'm going to demonstrate that I have the power to affect the spiritual claim I just made. To claim that you have the ability to forgive sins is not just to claim that you are God. It's to also claim that you are aware of a sacrifice. And Jesus is going, I can forgive you because I know I'm going to lay it down for you. And watch this. Do not miss this. In disappointing this man's expectations... And in getting deeper than an immediate need and going to an ultimate need, Jesus is actually exceeding them. See, because it would be unloving for Jesus to just go, okay, here's your miracle, get up and walk. No doubt if you're paralyzed, all your hope is in the ability to walk. You would actually believe that my whole life would be complete if I could just walk with everyone else. And you would believe that because of your condition. But here's what Jesus knows about the human condition. The human condition has a tendency to put hope in things that on the surface look like they're going to deliver but don't ultimately sustain. So if Jesus just gives this man a miracle, you know what happens a couple weeks later, maybe a couple months later, maybe a couple years later? The man goes right back to his ultimate issue, which is separation from God because of sin. And Jesus is going, more than your inability to walk, it's your propensity to wander that I have to get to the bottom of. It's your propensity to have this problem called sin and this separation from your relationship with God. So I know you came here for a miracle, and I know you came here for the ability to walk, but it's not unloving for me to look at you and say, son, speak to your identity instead of your activity. Son, your sins are forgiven because I know what you ultimately need. Some of you right now in 2021, you are disappointed in God. God's response to your prayers has seemed like he's not even listening to the words that you're saying. Some of the funerals that you've had to attend virtually, and you're going, God, we like prayed that whole time leading up to this moment, and this was your response. And God has a track record of disappointing our immediate expectations so that he can exceed them ultimately. And you are not going to see this in just a blink of an eye view. You're going to see this with a view of his character over and over and over again to go, I don't always understand him, and he's not safe, but he's good, as C.S. Lewis wrote. And I'm not always going to see it in a moment, but ultimately, you need to know, whenever Jesus disappoints your expectations, he is ultimately going to exceed them if you are able to see him through with the eyes of faith. And that's what I want you to do. How are you going to be able to do that? This is so huge. The only way you're going to be able to do that is if you have the right friends. 
Now, this is going to come out of nowhere because you're like, you are preaching a gospel message about Jesus having the authority to forgive sins, and I thought this message was about who are my people. I thought this message was about friendship. I pointed all that out about Jesus to tell you this. There are some things in your life that only Jesus can do. Only Jesus can forgive your sins. Only Jesus can bring you into a right relationship with God. And only Jesus is a miracle worker and can do things like help this man in this moment, no doubt. But sometimes the power that only Jesus has can only be accessed with the right friends to get you in his presence. This conversation never happens if you don't have four people who are so dedicated to getting their friend in the presence of Jesus that they're literally willing to see a crowd and go, we can't let that stop us. This could be our friend's only shot at getting in front of this guy. So even if we got to dig through a roof, we're going to make sure that this man gets his moment in front of Jesus. And it's ultimately friendship, I believe, friendship that unlocks the door for you to have a personal relationship with Jesus that exceeds the access that you could have on your own. I believe in this message because I've seen it in my life over and over and over again. I cannot tell you how many times over the course of the past 20 years I would have walked away from God. And not even because I felt like continuing to follow Jesus, but just because of the convenience of all of the people who are in that inner circle encouraging me, going after Jesus. There was no way I was going to run away. There was no way I was going to leave because it was like, well, if I leave, then... I'm not going to have any friends. And so I got to be, be so rooted in community with people who are pushing me to be more like Jesus that my propensity to wander is also solved by my relationships with them. Because Jesus says my relationships with them are what are going to lead me to him. And so if you miss this element of your faith, you are so significant, significantly limiting yourself. I want to beg you in this moment, don't miss this. And yes, I, I was in front of middle schoolers and high schoolers all weekend, and this is like a favorite message. I had so many parents coming up to me and telling me, this is what I want my kids to hear. This is what I want my kids to hear. This is what I want my kids to hear. But I couldn't help but think, this is what the church needs to hear. Because sometimes sustaining your disappointment in God looks like friends all around you going, hey, I don't understand it, and I can't explain it, but I'm here. You don't know, normally when I have a phone call or I have a face-to-face with somebody who's going through something unimaginable, I just listen. And yes, it's helpful to pray and give advice, but sometimes you just need to sit in people's pain with them. Talk to a mom connected to our church. She's never been here physically. She's hoping she lives long enough to make it. She said, I want to come to one of your night services (laughs) to see the type of faith that is described at Auburn Community Church. She was given two months to live almost three years ago. And God has done miracle after miracle after miracle to get her this far. And on the phone with her for almost an hour on Friday, I probably said five sentences. Because what people need when they're going through desperate times is they just need a friend to fall into and be there. And sometimes that's enough. And sometimes that's enough to help them sustain in their relationship with Jesus. Because what they're probably not going to get is an explanation in this life for why it was so hard or why it was so impossible. But the way Jesus will provide is through a friendship that's going to sustain until that day in eternity where the weight of glory far exceeds the weight of suffering. Every sickness and every difficulty and every disappointment, I'm telling you, in the sight of Jesus will be outweighed by the glory of God eternally. But until then, what's God's plan to get me there? How am I going to make it? How am I going to sustain deep relationships? 
And some of you have been so openly living in isolation, and some of you have opened the door to the wrong people to take you to the wrong place. And today is the day that changes. My whole message is one sentence, and you can write it down. Your friends will carry you or cripple you. Your friends will carry you or cripple you. And watch this. There is no in-between. There is no like, well, it's a neutral friendship, like we kind of, you know, we, we, we hurt each other at some points and we help each other at some points. No, you're either being carried to Jesus or you're being crippled in this moment by the relationships that you are ignoring. And so I want to challenge us here today. You are at Auburn Community Church. You have an opportunity to experience a deep level of community in a local body of believers. And if this is not your home church, I highly encourage you to apply this message to whatever church you call home. But your friends are going to carry you or they are going to knock the legs out from under you spiritually. And Jesus knows, I'm not just here to provide for your miracle. And I love the miracle that he gave to this man. But it's not just about that. It's about the fact that all of us are paralyzed with this problem called sin. And God overcomes our propensity to wonder by giving us people to encourage us and lift us up and carry us along the way. Your friends will carry you or cripple you. Now, look up here. Don't miss this. Every time I've ever preached this and every time I've ever read this, I've read it through the lens of the man on the mat. And we do this. We have a very self-centered view of the scriptures. We always think that we're the main character in the story. We're the one Jesus is talking to. We're the one who needs the miracle. But I've never read this story through the lens of the four friends. What if the power of this message today is not just that you need to surround yourself with the right friends to carry you to Jesus, but what if the power of this message is asking the question, whose mat are you carrying? And who are you making sure gets in the presence of Jesus with your life? Who will you dig through a roof to make sure that they make it? Because it's equally as powerful. This message is not about creating holy huddles and Christian social groups that encourage each other and shelter each other's kids. This message is about getting mobilized through community to go out and carry people to Jesus. And so if we get equally as passionate about getting the help around ourselves as we do about being the help to a lost, dark, and broken world, we're going to align our mission with the mission of Jesus. And this is how the church is going to cause massive revival. I do believe this. It's love relationships. I believe that something more powerful can happen through a move of God through community than anything else. That's why our church is called Auburn Community Church. Community's at the center. Last week, we had a group here who, they drove two hours to be here last Sunday night, and they were blown away. They came up to me, and they were like, listen, we thought the music would be good, and the sermon would be good, and it was. It was fine, but the best thing about being here is watching the people interact with each other. They're like, "I've I've never seen a faith family who... Everybody who walks through the door, even during a pandemic, it is made sure that there is a touch point for them to be seen by somebody and acknowledged. And the way you guys come together, it's just phenomenal. Why do I bring that up? I bring that up because I always am honest with our people about how a message collides with how we're doing. Now, I don't know your story individually. I look at our church kind of collectively and try to speak to individual stories. And you know, I will tell you the truth. I will tell you when you need to be convicted, I will step on your toes. I will go, guys, we need to get better at this. Last week, I told the whole church that I feel like the vast majority of us are the seeds that have been sown among thorns. And we're getting choked out by worry and wealth and desires for sin. So you know I'll be honest with you and tell you when you're missing it. I'll be equally as honest with you and tell you when we're crushing it. Here's the thing. This message I have never been to a church or seen a group of people embody what I am describing better than you guys. It's unbelievable. Honestly, it takes me 
into an emotional state when I think about where things started to where they are today. And I only say that for a lot of the new people in this room. You are sitting in a church that embodies carrying people to Jesus and being carried by friends better than any group I've ever seen. I'm sure there's somebody better out there, but I'm saying I've been around a lot of churches. I've been, a lot, I've been around a lot of groups. Never seen a culture like this. Why am I telling you that? Because if you're here and you're not experiencing it, that is not because of this church. It is because of you. And I don't say that to just make you feel bad and blame it all on you. I say that to tell you the truth. The opportunity is here. It's like right in front of you. And you have an opportunity to experience life in deep community with other people. Oh, it may not happen immediately, and we're going to talk about that. But I believe more than God wants to mobilize our sermons or our songs, God wants to mobilize our relationships with each other and the way we go about missionally to a lost, dark, and broken world. And things are changing because people are praying and we are seeing real people right in front of our eyes. This week when we left 21 days of prayer one morning, it's like, gosh, what is it, like almost 7 a.m. There's a woman sitting out in the street in front of our church. Doesn't know why she's there, doesn't know how she got there, but she knows that that day she's going to take her life, for sure. And guys, we're never here at 6.50 in the morning, that hundreds of us would be here praying, and then she just happens to be out there, doesn't even know how she got there, and is going, I was going to take my life today, and then this flood of people came out of this building, and I walk up to her car, and somebody who's sitting on the front row today is already praying over her and speaking new life over her. I love that our church gets to be a part of making the devil pay because someone in Auburn took their life a week ago, but a week later, somebody is still here because the church was available to come around people. That's what we're all about. We're seeing this happen again and again, and I want to see it continue. So I'm going to preach two things into the life of our church that you're already living, but to invite the people who may be listening online or who are in the room who are not experiencing it, this is it. Is this helpful for anybody? Somebody say, who are my people? Who are my people? Come on, let's answer that question. Number one, two observations from this story that I want to infuse into the life of our church. The price of community is the sacrifice of commitment. The price of community is the sacrifice of commitment. If you've been coming for a while, you're like, I've heard that before. I know. I say it every year since 2015. I wrote this line in 2015 as a description of how I wanted ACC to become a community church. I didn't realize when we started the church that community takes time. The word community means common memory. And so many people want community when they come either into a church or to a friend circle. But here's what you don't realize. Community doesn't come until you've been committed for a certain amount of time to make memories. So common memory creates community. You have the most community, not with the group of people who you're related to by blood, but the group of people you have the most amount of memories with. When you've gone on vacations with people, when you've experienced Christmases, when you have memories with a group of friends, you get around them and you feel this sense of almost tribal camaraderie that you don't feel around anybody else. God put that on the inside of human beings. And so memories over time make up community. And so when you have a group of people who wants community, but it's void of commitment, you know what happens? They get frustrated because they don't realize it takes time and it takes memories and it takes effort. If you're not committed to something truly, you're not going to experience the benefits of it. Everything great comes at a great cost. There's nothing that you have that is considered great or valuable that isn't equally as valuable in cost. Same is true about salvation. It's free for us, cost heaven everything, Jesus' blood. Same thing with community. You think you're going to experience something this valuable and this amazing, and honestly, this thing that very few people have around the world without having to give up something? The sacrifice is commitment. 
And so in 2014, when we started ACC, we were two months in and nothing was going the way I had the vision of it going because all these people were coming to our church and they were talking about the churches that they used to go to and how much they felt like that was more home than this was home or other spaces. And I was like, this is so frustrating because I wanted this space to feel like home. I wish somebody would run up to me and said, hey, you have to like make memories for a little while. Like you have to build this over time and people start to feel at home and they start to do life with one another and then they walk into a space and they feel like they belong. Why? Because true confidence is the byproduct of belonging. You feel like you belong the most in the spaces that you are the most confident and you will be the most confident version of yourself as a follower of Jesus when you are surrounded with like-minded people who are lifting you up. And so if you go to a community group, you're like, my community group didn't work. You went twice. Well, this church, like, nobody talked to me. You came every other week for two months. Like, community takes commitment. And if you sow into your local church a level of commitment to serve, to give, and surround yourself with the right amount of people, I'm telling you the fruit of that life is true friendships. And no, you're not going to know the thousands of people's names who call this place home. Doing life deeply happens in smaller circles, but it's not circles that face inward. It's circles that are bound together facing outward. This is God's plan. This is how the church grew from house churches to all over the world 2,000 years ago, and it's still God's plan today. And so I got a question. Who are your people? Who are the people that you're committed to doing life with deeply? And not just who are the people that you're committed to hanging out and going out to dinner. All that stuff is fun. But who are the people who are asking you tough questions? Who are the people who are there for the moments that you might compromise and do something that you wouldn't normally do? Because when you get isolated, you're not you. You know those commercials that are like, you're not you when you're hungry? The truth is, that's true. You're not you when you're isolated. And isolation is crippling our people faster than the wrong friendships are. People who are okay being alone. And Some of you will hear a message like this and you'll go, it's, I have a personality type. I'm introverted. Listen, I get it. There's a way to be an introvert but also make sure you are surrounded with people who are encouraging you. My wife is the perfect picture of it. I'm extroverted, shock, (laughs) she's introverted. But we have decided, you know what, we're gonna surround ourselves with people who are gonna be like-minded and building us up in our faith. And we got really convicted. I'll tell you something about our worship pastor. He's not with us today, but Matt Cole, when we were doing a fast in 2019, he told me this later, only when God answered the prayer. And I hope you're praying about specific things this month, but in 2019, He and his wife were fasting, and they had a prayer list. One of the things on their prayer list was that Courtney and I would find a community group in our church. I had no idea. Because I was like, that's weird for, like, the pastor to be in a group with everybody else. Like, it's just just a little bit strange. And over time, God actually provided that for Courtney and I. And I'm looking around, and I'm going, this is not something that, like, you graduate to a level of maturity spiritually, and now you don't need people. Everybody, including us needs friendships to surround them and go, hey, we're here when life goes terribly and we're here just on the journey together because there is power in numbers. I could talk about this one forever, but guys, this is the one. I'm gonna talk about this next year and the year after that and the year after that. The price of community is the sacrifice of commitment. Get in a dang community group. Get on a serve team. That's what point number one means, okay? Who are my people? Somebody say, who are my people? The price of community, sorry I said dang, is the sacrifice of commitment. Number two, final point, and this one's just kind of personal for what's going on right now. The local church is the hope of our country. The local church is the hope of our country. On a grand scale, I just feel uh, an elevated level of weight from the things that have happened, not just the last couple of weeks, but the past year in our country. 
And there's a tendency for us right now to become so exhausted by the narrative that we can kind of either ignore it or disengage from it, or we can become too immersed in it that it keeps us from sleeping at night. I want you to know today, the hope of the United States of America is not in new elected leaders, a new political platform, or a new way of doing things. The hope of the United States of America in response to riots, in response to racial tension, in response to division, is a united local church who have love relationships with one another that stand out from the rest of the world. That's the plan. And that was the plan for the man who we honor tomorrow, Martin Luther King Jr. What separated MLK from so many of his contemporaries was he chose to fight the battle against racism and injustice with the gospel instead of with a gun or a sword. And what he did is he fought violence with peace. He fought being struck on one side with turning the other cheek. And ultimately his legacy endures among so many of his contemporaries because his legacy is a legacy rooted in the way of Jesus, which is relationships with one another. Wherever you land politically, Wherever you land economically, wherever you land, that's not what's important. What's important is that you are a part of a local body of believers. And wherever you call home, I believe that those relationships are what is going to carry our country united moving forward. Our country is divided, and honestly, I'm a little bit tired of the news cycle saying things when things happen, like when the riots happened a couple weeks ago, or when George Floyd was murdered, or when... uh, all these different things happen through coronavirus and the election and everything. You know what the news, you know what they keep saying? They keep saying, we're better than this. And they say that, and then two weeks later, they have to say it again. Guys, we're better than this. We're better than this. We're better than this. And I heard a pastor say this last week, and it just impacted me to bring it to our people. There's a certain amount of times where you say the same thing, and then you come to discover that we're actually not better than this. If it keeps happening and your track record is what it is, you got to admit it. Anybody ever been on a bad sports team and you like almost win games and you go into the locker room and you guys keep saying to each other, hey, we could have beat them. Like next game, we got this. But then you lose enough and you're like, okay, we're not good. We're not good. Hey, America, that's where we are. We're not better than this. We're not better than people dying in the street. We're not better than violence. We're not better than destruction. We're not better than hate. That is the way that it is because our problem is not those things and our problem is not the people in power. The problem is us. We are sinful and separated from God. What is God's remedy to that? Jesus. But what's the pathway for people to have a meeting with Jesus so that they can get freed from what's paralyzing them? Friends, relationships, love, unity, community. And we have it right here. All we have to do is be unselfish enough to unleash it and commit to it over time, even when it doesn't feel like it's working. And so that's my challenge to you personally today. I promise I'm done, Ben. Y'all can come up here. I know I went like far over. But my challenge for you, let's be that church. Let's be that church in 2021 who stands against the grain. And let's be the church that stands against the darkness. You can stand up right where you are. I want to pray this into existence. You can come here and you can enjoy the sermons and songs for the rest of your life. You're welcome to do that and never give a dollar. Honestly, we'll always have a seat for you. Actually, I can't guarantee that. We'll have overflow or somewhere for you to sit. Well, I would love it if we were a church that wasn't content to just show up, but that we do life deeply. Let me pray that over you right now. Heavenly Father, I pray in this moment before we sing and leave this space that your Holy Spirit would be moving in a powerful way over our church family. God, I pray that more people would taste 
the beauty of community that you have given us than ever before. Not because we need friends and not because we just want to enjoy life, God, but because you are a community. You are Father, Son, and Spirit. And the same way you enjoy community, you have invited us in to that relationship with you and you have invited us in together. So God, I pray that we are a church that is bold enough to look different. I pray that when the world sees what's happening in a space like this, they know that it looks nothing like any other option they have. In the name of Jesus, would you do it? In the name of Jesus, would you not allow us to settle for less than the life you died and rose for us to live? We love you. We trust you. We sing to you as one family this morning. God, let us lift our voices in the name of Jesus. Amen.